ladies and gentlemen. My name is Dr. John Duke Anthony. I'm the <clears throat> founding president and chief executive officer of the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations, <clears throat> established in 1983 as a non-governmental, non-profit organization, the National Council as, has one word for its mission, and that is education, to strengthen and expand <clears throat> America's relationship with its Arab friends, its Arab allies, its, its Arab partners, and its uh, strategic counterparts. We have three individuals who are going to help us today to see where we stand with regard to one of the most vexing, if not the most vexing, of all issues pertaining to those who are analysts, researchers, writers, publicists, specialists, and foreign affairs practitioners pertaining to Arabia and the Gulf, in particular to that country which lines the eastern shores of this <coughs> seven-part uh, uh, region that uh, has Arab nations, and an eighth one, which is Iran. And Iran's population uh, outstrips the combined populations of all the other seven. Iran's coastline uh, far surpasses the coastlines of any three to four of any of the Arab countries on the western side of the Gulf. <clears throat> Iran's history, according to its own publicists, propagandists, but true patriots and nationalists, is longer, richer, more documented, more multifaceted, more diverse. Uh, than any of its uh, Arab neighbors, with the possible exception of Iran, of Iraq, excuse me, and a rival as well further west in terms of Syria, the banks of the eastern uh, Mediterranean. <clears throat> Here we have a country that at one time was larger than it is now. And this is in part because some of its neighbors are smaller uh, than they were at a time, but have become larger than they once were because of territory lost by Iran, or some would say to Iran. Iran is also not in, in any way, shape or form, unassociated, irrelevant to what is going on in Ukraine, in Belarusia, in Kiev, with regard to Russia and Moscow. Uh, nor is it totally disassociated from lands further east in terms of uh, East Asia's China. And Americans are woefully inadequate in their knowledge, the understanding, the information, and insight about the implications of the Sino-Soviet or Sino-Russian relationship and the frequency and intensity with which uh, Russia's leaders, China's leaders, share geostrategic perspective and a concern and various needs from their perspective regarding the United uh, States. Nor, not to leave as last by any means, is this issue of these issues, is this country unrelated to American and indeed global and regional and interregional concerns with regard to Israel. Uh, Israel is the undeclared nuclear power in the region, uh, but a power that has uh, articulated so-called red lines with respect to it will never accept Iran's uh, ability to produce a nuclear weapon, let alone the means to deliver it. Now, to focus on these and related issues, uh, zeroing in on a contemporary affairs, current events issue, uh, with uh, negotiations, so to speak, or discussions at least, extensive between Iran and what are now known as the P4 countries. This is the five United Nations Security Councils that have permanent status and veto powers. None of us uh, in the United Nations do. It's called P4, used to be P5, before the United States withdrew from the Joint Comprehensive Reduction uh, uh, <coughs> Agreement. Here we have uh, Dr. Mohammed Al-Salami, we have uh, Colonel David DeRoche, and we have Mr. Norman Rule. We'll go in that sequence. Mr. Mohammed al-Salami is based in Riyadh. He is Saudi Arabia's foremost specialist in Iran affairs, Saudi Arabia's relations with Iran, its needs, its concerns, its interests, its foreign policy and foreign relations goals with Iran. 
there are few people, uh, if any, in the Arab East uh, who could rival the extent and degree and diversity of focus laser-like that Mohammed al-Salami has on matters pertaining to Iran. Following him will be Colonel David DeRoche, who's the Senior National Counsel on U.S.-Arab Relations Fellow. He's also an Associate Professor at the National Defense Unit, University and a former director in the Office of the Secretary of Defense pertaining to Arabia and the Gulf. All six of the GCC countries, namely Bahrain, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, United Arab Emirates, and Oman. He's also a, a ranger, paratrooper, and nearly uh, accomplished with his PhD from King's College, uh, London. Mr. Rule uh, has longer experience inside and outside pertaining to Iran than any uh, living American for 35 years, three and a half decades, <clears throat> having been the nation's top specialist on intelligence matters, analytical matters, and these pertaining to policy and decision-making matters regarding Iran. I'll go in this particular sequence, starting with you, Dr. El-Salami. We're talking about the implications of an agreement or no agreement uh, with Iran pertaining to its nuclear development program. Uh, and very good morning, uh, DC time and uh, very good afternoon from Riyadh time. Thank you very much, uh, Professor John Anthony for the invitation and for having me today in this important topic, which is uh, timely important and it's really uh, it's the hot topic right now uh, whether in this region or in the or elsewhere not because it's important but because this is uh, has its own implications on the whole world if there is a fighting in a part of the world it has uh, it will reach the other parts so therefore i think uh, we have been uh, uh, reading and watching some statements from different uh, members of the B5 plus one um, and of the, uh, the, the meeting in Vienna uh, and also uh, some new, I think, uh, I mean, uh, from the Congress, maybe uh, uh, my colleague Roll will talk about that more. But uh, if we have a deal or we, we didn't, what is the problem or what are the problems, I would say, in both cases, if there is a deal, and of course Iran wants a deal, uh, but we have to look back and learn from the history what happened in 2015. If there is a deal, similar deal, if we reviving the former JCPOA deal, exactly the same thing, uh, Iran uh, will celebrate, of course, uh, for one reason because uh, they gain lots of money, uh, liquidity, and that was not suspended. The, that, was, that was not spend, uh, spent on Iranian people or inside Iran. It was sent to militias and proxies across the region from Lebanon to Iraq, Syria, Yemen, uh, Eastern Province of Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, uh, and you name it, all the way to Nigeria. So uh, the Iranian people who are suffering right now, and they have a lot of protests inside Iran, whether a shortage of water, uh, teachers who do not uh, gain, uh, do not... Uh, uh, receive their uh, salaries, they will remain the same thing, same conditions, no improvement, exactly no improvement. That's what happened also in 2017 when Iranians were uh, participating in a poll asking them what happened, after, uh, what, what, was your what was your conditions in 2015 and has it improved in, up to within two years? They said nothing has changed because the money didn't come inside the country. It was spent outside. So. Uh, if if we sign the same deal, if we rejoin the same or reviving the same deal, Iran will practice the same activities, but it will increase their uh, you know involvement and uh, expand uh, exporting the revolution. More militias now we have more than sixty militias in Iraq. So maybe in two years' time, if there is a deal, we'll see more than a hundred militias in Iraq, Syria, yeah, other places. So this is. Uh, from Iranian perspective, what the, the other, uh, especially the U.S., uh, wants to achieve from that, or the, I mean, Biden government, or Biden administration, mm -hmm. they want to grow long, I mean, the time. They will blame time, not the spring time in terms of uh, Iran may produce the open. 
but that, that would not change things. You know, will cheat as it has cheated before doing the deed from 2015-2018, it will do the same thing. So this goal will not be achieved because Iran will cheat and will have more secret places that to enrich uranium, to uh, do whatever they want to do. So if there is no deal, and if there is the deal, of course, the Gulf countries have uh, will have the same position they had in 2015. That is, they have own observations. They have their own problem with the deal. And of course, uh, they will try to protect themselves. Of course, they will learn from what happened in 2015, and and that unfortunately would may lead to uh, more confrontations with the Iran. That's a problem. More confrontation because they have to protect themselves. They have to protect their countries, and uh, of course, with the now we've seen the Houthis attacking the Saudi civilian sites, uh, including Mecca, holy city of Mecca. United Arab Emirates, Abu Dhabi, and other places, they will, of course, uh, these weapons, the Iranian weapons, will go to other places and we'll see more attacks. So we have to, to protect ourselves and that have to put all the options at the table. And this is very dangerous for both sides, not Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, none of the regional countries want to go in war with Iran, but they have to protect their people, they have to protect their country, sovereignty, the, their interests. This is very important. So if there is, what about if there is no deal? If there is no deal, uh, of course, for Iran, it will try to, uh, you know, increase its activity, I mean, uh, nuclear activities. They will try to go up to 90% in enriching the uranium. They will try to, to send some messages to the neighboring countries, maybe for a limited time, they will increase their activities and of course support the militia, but that has its own implications and has reactions from regional countries. Of course, uh, if Iran goes it that way, I, I think there are more options for not only Gulf countries, but United Arab States, United, United uh, States for Israel, and we have seen some statements from Blinken, from Israeli from, uh, prime minister that all the options will be in the, uh, on the tables. And if Iran uh, goes the way to the weapon, we have to step in and take some action, including military. Uh, and of course, they have to, they may attack uh, Iranian uh, nuclear sites, uh, you know, uh, enrichment uranium sites and facilities, and we don't know. And this is, has its own, again, implications on the regional countries, because if there is a war, uh, we'll, we'll face lots of uh, difficulties and challenges. Of course, whether uh, direct attacks or indirect attacks, if there is, um, of course, refugees in Iran that will go to Saudi Arabia and Gulf countries, if there is uh, leaks in, in, in the nuclear facilities of Iran then that will damage the waters and the life in, in the Gulf. And that has its own, again, implications and threat in the region. So what is the, what is the third option we have? It's, uh, uh, it has been on the table for a while. Some people are talking about like the Russians, Iranians denied that, which is, uh, uh, you know, temporary or uh, agreements that for, spend, uh, for a short time, to renegotiate and to come up with a better deal. And that it's not new, by the way, it has been in 2013, during the period between 2013 to 2015, when we, uh, I mean, two countries, uh, two sides signed the JCPOA. So that is good, maybe option for the United States and the uh, B5 plus one, because they were blame the time and to try to, uh, to draft a better deal. And for, for Iran, although it is not the best, option, but again, they, they think it's it's better than that, anything. And of course, they will gain some um, liquidity, money, and the frozen assets in, abroad, they will get, get some money, they will try to sell more oil. And of course, Iran wants to, be, to sign a deal by the end of the day with a Republican government, United States, not uh, a Democrat. That is uh, the Iranian decision, of course, because the experience they had. So, they may play on that. So uh, uh, the problem we have here, what kind of deal will it reach? Will it include all the three files or not? We have the nuclear files, 
we have the ballistic missile program, we have the Iranian regional activities. What can we uh, what can we achieve, and how can we achieve these three files to go together? Because priorities are different. The the American priority may be the nuclear issue. The European priority is the plastic missile program because they are in, in of those uh, attacks. And for regional countries, they are threatened by the two these two priorities, but most likely, uh, most uh, mostly by Iranian regional behavior, militia militias across the region and the attacks we have seen it, we have been seeing it, seeing it uh, on the ground in Saudi Arabia and Arab Emirates uh, almost weekly. So, uh, so we have to put those, all those files together. We have to, uh, to reach a win-win situation uh, that will may take time. And we have to be, uh, to monitor, uh, to reach that point, I think it's very important to, uh, Put more restrictions on Iran, more sanctions on Iran, more uh, monitoring uh, the Iranian cheating in terms of sanctions. Of course, Russia, China have their own, of course, uh, uh, positions in that regard. Iran, China may buy more water, oil from Iran, but again, they have their own relations, the Gulf and interests with the Gulf countries, and of course, maybe the Gulf countries can can reach out to China and Russia to, to reach a better deal. But by the way, even, even Russia doesn't want Iran to, to produce the oil, uh, the, the bomb, China also. But we the problem is Iran playing with these difficulties or this uh, uh, what's the so-called uh, Cold War between the United States uh, and China. And they are trying to, to play in, the, in this uh, ambiguity or the gray area. Uh, by the end of the day, whether we reach a deal or not, it depends on, on the deal. If there is a deal, it should be a better deal, taking into consideration all the concerns, both regional and international players. If it, oh. if it repeats the same, same thing we had in 2015, we'll go again to square number one, and maybe in two, two years, and again have to negotiate with Iranian. At that time, Iran may, may uh, already uh, produced is the, the bomb, and then we'll have more uh, arm racing in the region and more difficulties, more wars. Of course, Iran is uh, objective of Iran to have more wars, to have more killing in the region. This is the ideology, uh, I mean, uh, guiding or driving the foreign policy of Iran. We have to understand that. Iran's main ideology is to have more war wars across the region in order uh, to have the hidden amount to appear. This is not uh, a statement, I mean, uh, my claim. This is uh, go back to their, uh, I mean, institutions, their uh, uh, legacies, the Khamenei, Khomeini legacies, the literature, you find it there. So they want to have more wars, more killing, more destructions in the region. So we have to stop them. Can we hold it there, Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Uh, that's how we with that. Thank you, Thank you for uh, your introduction and, and overview remarks. We'll turn now to uh, David uh, DeRoche, uh, who uh, wrongly uh, mentioned uh, would be a uh, presenter. He's more a moderator here uh, and is free to uh, make any comments and input as he so, so chooses. Uh, uh, Colonel DeRoche. I have a couple of thoughts and it's a perspective that's not often there. So in addition to, in addition, I'm sorry, I prepared to do both. I, both. I have a couple of uh, comments, uh, which I think might be helpful to the discussion. So in addition to the work I do uh, for the Near East South Asia Center and National Council and other think tanks, uh, particularly during COVID, I've, I've become uh, a pretty regular commentator on uh, Arabic language and regional media, uh, most notably television, to include some stations which uh, are not friendly towards the United States. Uh, 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 Lebanese channels, which uh, are Hezbollah and Iran friendly, uh, RT, which is Russian friendly. And so I want to use that as well as my media and think tank appearances to draw on that and highlight some of the regional concerns with the JCPOA, uh, which I think will perhaps uh, lead nicely into uh, Norman's presentation and provoke some questions. So first off. Welcome. Excellent. 
So first, um, let me start by, uh, I have basically five observations that I've heard uh, from almost all you know, countries in the Arab world, as well as from Israel. The first concern with the JCPOA is that when you limit behavior uh, in one aspect, you in effect grant license in the others. And so the JCPOA originally was felt to be, uh, since it limited the nuclear program, that it was granting Iran a license and sort of an immunity to continue with ballistic missile development, the uh, fielding of proxies, the uh, subversion of the region, undermining of regimes, establishing its hold on the four Arab capitals, Baghdad, uh, Damascus, uh, uh, Beirut, and Sanaa. Uh, so that was the first concern. Uh, by limiting just in one area, you created license anyone else. Related to that was the second concern, which is that it completely did not address missiles or proxy warfare activity, or indeed any other uh, uh, misbehavior to include uh, alleged Iranian um, involvement, uh, collusion in the Syrian regime's uh, manufacturing and trafficking of Captagon, which is the number one drug of abuse in Saudi Arabia, for example. So the lack of missiles and proxies was briefly addressed by um, President Biden uh, when he said, yeah, we'll try to do this, but that seems to have moved by the wayside as the actual nuts and bolts of negotiations went on. The third um, uh, uh, objection, which I mostly heard from Arab partners, was that uh, since Iran was being, in effect, given license to act in contrary to IAEA standards and, and certainly contrary to the normal international norms of nuclear proliferation, would Saudi Arabia and the UAE and other interested countries in the region be granted the same license? Uh, this is this is, was at the time when this was raised in 2015, was raised as sort of a negotiating gambit or as a spoiler alert to, to basically uh, spook the Obama administration into thinking that there'd be this rush for nuclear armament. But I've, over time, I've become convinced that it's, it's rather a clearly held view that if these countries wish to preserve their national sovereignty, they cannot allow Iran to, in effect, be rewarded for bad behavior. And even if they don't have plans for a nuclear program, they will have to pursue the same levels of enrichment just to make a point that their national security interests have to be taken into account. And I don't think that there's been a full discussion of that in the states in the West and in the parties of the P5 plus one of what the implications are on the regional powers of basically allowing and routinizing uh, bad behavior by Iran. Uh, when we do talk about that, usually that conversation is limited to people who work on India versus Pakistan. Uh, once India was uh, freed from some of the sanctions regimes for their nuclear program, Pakistan instantly wants the same. We have not had that same discussion with the same level of robustness uh, in, in Iran in the Gulf studies. Then the final, uh, the, the fourth problem I see is something that I've often discussed here at the National Council and I know in think tanks, there's uh, an idea that the U.S. is changing, is trading, is on the verge of trading Arab chess pieces for Iranian chess pieces. This uh, stems from, I think, a deep-seated concern that the American presence was minimal prior to Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait. Uh, it's transitory. We haven't set up the same network of bases and social structures in the Gulf that we have, say, in Germany. In large part, that's because the Gulf doesn't want that. They don't want to have, uh, you know, thousands of 18-year-old American soldiers uh, roaming the streets of um, Kuwait City on a Thursday night the way we do in um uh, Nuremberg or something in Friday night, the height of the Cold War. And then the final uh, concern, I think, has to do with the nature and misunderstanding of how Iran sees the region. And uh, this has been enunciated to me, to me several times, but basically Iran sees itself as the leader of what they call the axis of resistance. And the axis of resistance in their telling is a... Um, uh, network that is exists to oppose American hegemony, uh, which is uh, rapacious and all-encompassing, seeks to control everything in the world, but particularly in the Gulf, and uh, exercises itself through, uh, in the Iranian telling again, its lackeys in the Arab states of the Gulf and Israel. Uh, in the Iranian telling, the axis of the resistance uh, has been reinforced with the Abraham Accords, and uh, they, any action is viewed as significant. So when Benny Gantz 
flew to, um, uh, I guess, Bahrain the other day. Uh, his airplane flew through Saudi airspace, and they made a big thing that this was the first voluntary uh, Israeli military aircraft crossing of Saudi Arabia. Well, okay, it's it. I guess it belongs to the Air Force, but it's a unarmed 707. Uh, and of course, the axis of the resistance, led by Iran, consists of their proxies and servants in Iraq, Syria, uh, Lebanese Hezbollah, uh, Hamas in Gaza, the only primarily Sunni organization, and the Houthi movements in Yemen. The fear is that uh, you know, folks in the, in the uh, region are very aware of this concept of the axis of the resistance. Their fear is that um, if a deal is struck with Iran, the West gives up its only tool, economic sanctions, the only tool that it's willing to use, in exchange for one aspect of bad behavior, this provides an umbrella under which the Iranian doctrine of axis of the resistance will proceed. So these are regional considerations. They're not my view, or they're not my, uh, my opinion is that they exist in the region and I'd be happy to answer your questions and I will turn it over to Dr. Anthony and to uh, Mr. Rule. Thank you, Colonel DeRoche. Uh, Mr. Rule, floor is yours. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. I thank you for including me uh, with such um, um, uh, such esteemed and 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 uh, knowledgeable guests. I'll try to avoid uh, duplicating their important comments. When I look at the current situation, I my first thought is that future historians will likely ascribe the current and recent period of Iran policy as being generally uh, confused and sometimes rudderless from an international perspective. Um, this is now an era in which this policy is nested within a dynamic of growing multipolarity, routine revisionist aggression, international indifference to uh, human suffering, and an erosion of collective security not seen since the late 1930s. Uh, we're watching in the past years um, routine hybrid warfare, um, international fatigue regarding conflict and a lack of any approach to Iran's creation of an access of misery um, in the region. There is a refusal to combine diplomacy with non-economic coercion. American politics is fragmented. European political sy uh, systems uh, seem weak and unable to coalesce on decisions regarding aggression, and Russia and China seem determined to reweave the fabric of international security. We're in the midst of this process. This is rolling forward. We should be thinking a longer game, a longer period of time, and know that the results in the future could be quite dramatic, and I'll mention this at the end. But above all, this is more than, than just Iran. And we are watching, as I've mentioned, the rise of revisionist actors. Russia and Russia's action in Ukraine um, is an important part of our current political discussion, but it's not dissimilar to what Iran is doing. Each seeks the same thing. They're seeking a redefinition of the fabric of international relations and how other countries view their regional aggression and then normalize that aggression in an increasingly multipolar world. And they're succeeding. Think how in Russia in, 19, in 2014 had to use little green men and deny its presence in Ukraine. And Iran initially denied its presence in Syria, Iraq, Yemen. Russia now has openly placed its forces on Ukraine's border. Iran openly talks about its military support to, to the region. That's a shift. They also each benefit financially from a rise in oil prices, which they're able to spike through their aggression. The second thing I think it's important to mention is each is trying to exert new influence on what they perceive as their historic near abroad. Each understands that they're a weak power. Iran's economy is about the size of that of Maryland. Their military is relatively primitive as compared to the United States, although, of course, their missile program, mine program, and other programs um, make them a, a formidable adversary. But each is seeking to play their cards in a way to revive re re regional and even global influence. Iran's influence over the Strait of Hormuz and the Babel Mandav give it a capacity to influence global trade and energy markets. Last, they're each seeking to cripple the influence and even interest of the United States in being able to influence world events and then create frictions that promote, um, create uh, conditions that create frictions within Western coalitions that they would fear most. This is a really difficult uh, situation for, for observers. 
And if you're looking at the situation of moving forward, where we go here with Iran, this is very challenging. Iran's own actions are increasingly, and strangely, only a minor ingredient of a, of a witch's brew of transnational complexity and partisan politics, and even social change. Within the United States, the debate over the nuclear deal is akin to a religious war. It's driven by slogans, groupthink, and unwillingness to debate the legitimate concerns of each side. And we have a dynamic in which two administrations, albeit from the same party, have found it easier to come to a deal with Iran, one of our most aggressive and lethal adversaries, than with the opposing political party on Iran policy. And we also see the issue of traditional security relationships in the Gulf. Um, we see in the United States many who criticize our Gulf partners in Israel, but they also refrain from criticizing Iran. So what does this mean for Iran and how has this played out? So Iran's actions have been likely shaped by two drivers, total sanctions relief, not just sanction, nuclear sanctions relief, but they saw that after the nuclear deal, that businessmen rightfully said we should not invest in a country that is so susceptible to sanctions for non-nuclear actions. Second, the Biden administration, and I'm rigidly nonpartisan, but the Biden administration arrived with a number of conditions that shaped Iranians' thinking. It would shift the weight of U.S. attention from the Middle East to China, climate change, social issues. It opposed U.S. military involvement in the Middle East. It promised a return to the 2015 deal, compliance for compliance. It opposed the policy of maximum pressure. It would rebuild alliances with Europe, but this would be less about the P5 adopting our positions and more about our moving closer to European positions. Uh, and also it had frictions with traditional allies such as Saudi Arabia and Israel. So what were Iran's goals over the last year that we've seen play out? Well, first to preserve the traditional red lines within the JCPOA deal. Uh, industrial enrichment must be authorized, no dismantling or closure, of, no closure of sites, no uh, cessation of research and, and development, and an end of restrictions on Iran at some point in the deal. They wanted recognition of Iran as a de facto major power. They wanted to split the international coalitions. They wanted long talks. Those always benefit an aggressive smaller power. They wanted to use defiance to dictate when they would meet and with whom they would meet. And they would use the time to build a program that would gain the stature that they could then leverage against extension of sunsets or other issues. Is so we're now at a situation where we say, is a deal likely? And the answer is, it's a political decision by Iran. Many have said that the, the ability to build a weapon technologically is a political decision by Iran. But likewise, the deal right now is in Iran's hands. It could happen this week or in a month or never. But if judged on the framework of 2014, the original JCPOA is no longer seems, seems relevant. And if you're in the region, it's difficult to say that you should lift all sanctions on Iran in exchange for a deal that lifts missile sanctions in 2023, ends the UN snapback capacity in 2025, and in, by 2031 allows Iran to enrich to any extent in any amount it, wish, it wishes. I'll close with two thoughts. What do I worry about? Well, I worry about two things that I think this dynamic of multipolarity and ignoring the focus on Iran will produce. First, as we've seen in the recent attacks in Abu Dhabi, Iran is allowing its proxies to use Iranian weapons of mass destruction to attack multiple and routinely multiple mass casualty civilian targets. That could produce a 9-11 style event while I'm speaking, God forbid. If it happens, this is not an intelligence question. This is not a surprise. We know this could happen. We're relying entirely on defense. The second issue is, whereas I don't fear or don't believe that it's likely we're going to see nuclear programs in the near term in Saudi Arabia or the Emirates, these take a long time to develop, it wouldn't surprise me if either significantly increased their missile programs to develop a deterrent against Iran. And indeed, it was such a deterrent that was the primary driver between the kingdom's acquisition of CSS-2s in the mid-1980s. If either of these things happen, we should say to ourselves, they were predictable. They were preventable. Our policies chose to um, not take the actions required to uh, make those shifts. Thank you.
Colonel DeRoche, uh, response, comment, input, uh, as you please, or we'll uh, go to straight to some questions that are being put by those who've used the chat box. Well, I've spoken enough, so let's take questions, see what the, see what the uh, audience has to say. All right, here's uh, <clears throat> one. How does the Biden administration's decision not to interact with Saudi Arabia's uh, crown prince uh, in the eyes of many de facto head of state, Mohammed bin Salman, affect um, these issues, these questions, these challenges, as much as was the case with the Trump administration, which had, comparatively speaking, better, if not superb relations uh, with the same international, national, interregional actor. I guess that's to Mr. Rule. Well, I have long been a public and private advocate of robust intelligence, uh, political and military support to all of our regional, traditional regional partners to enable them to defend themselves, their citizens, our citizens and the citizens of other countries against um, uh, this Iranian threat. Uh, there are American lives, as well as Saudi lives, and Emirati lives, and others at risk every day. I think the question should be this dynamic, which is driven by American politics, and the Biden administration was quite open in this position and stuck to it. Does it delay the decision making and the steps needed to ensure the security of our two countries and those of others? We've had interactions with our secretaries of defense, our secretaries of state. Um, uh, routine interactions uh, with the Saudi ambassador, who is uh, one of the most uh, powerful officials uh, among the diplomatic cadre in Washington. Uh, but it is notable that the crown prince can speak to pretty much any leader on earth except the U.S. president. Uh, that's not helpful for a broader relationship. And um, uh, anything that, that, that continues that process is going to make it more difficult to protect our uh, nationals and build on the strategic relationship that has been so successful for um, um, uh, almost 80 years. Thank you. Um, here's another one, rather uh, complicated in one sense here. The, according to a State Department report of April 2021, 20, not yet, uh, 12 months ago, quote, the United States continued to assess that Iran is not currently engaged in key activities associated with the design and development of a nuclear weapon, end of quote. Question is this, why do US government assessments of Iran's activities with regard to its pursuit of nuclear weapons uh, vary so much uh, with other analyses and assessments that it, it, Iran is not at the present time in pursuit of nuclear weapons. Is as opposed to maybe or shortly soon is certain to be. In other words, there's a discrepancy between certain government and U.S. statements, uh, according to this quotation, <clears throat> that Iran is not currently pursuing uh, a nuclear uh, weapons. Yeah, so I think there's a, there's a couple issues there. First off, we don't have perfect knowledge. Um, you know, there was an entire facility that we didn't know about. Uh, secondly, um, different, you know, People don't realize, but the U.S. intelligence community is very, very big. Uh, you know, the, the formal major players, I think, is 19 agencies, um, you know, which includes like the Coast Guard and the Drug Enforcement Administration. Um, so they have different assets, different sensors. But there's a bigger issue here, I think, which perhaps Norman and uh, Mohammed are better to comment on, which is Iran gets, and it's a problem with negotiations in general, Iran gets maximum benefit by creating discrete events that seem to move towards uh, a nuclear weapon, but do not cross that line. And what that does is that creates angst, it creates a desire for, for uh, negotiations, it creates the possibility of concessions. All of that is possible, provided it moves up to that line, but not beyond it. And so uh, I think just as a, 
when you engineer your negotiation strategy, I think that it is in Iran's interest. And I think that if you look at their actions, what they've done would indicate that they've, they've done this. You set up a series of different events, different thresholds. You let it be known or it becomes, dis- or you realize that it will be discovered that you're approaching those thresholds. Each of those creates an impetus for a negotiation event, which has the possibility of an additional concession. I think we've seen similar behavior with North Korea. And I think, uh, uh, you know, there's any number of other problems where uh, any other situations where you can see people moving up to the point, uh, you know, in order to maximize concessions and opportunities for negotiations. All right. Thank you. Is uh, another one that spins off a quotation from former Saudi Arabian law term director general of external uh, intelligence former ambassador to the United States, went to the Court of St. James in Great Britain. Prince Turkey warned as much as in early as in 2015, the quote is as follows. I've always said, whatever comes out of these talks, we will want the same. So if Iran has the ability to enrich uranium to whatever level, it's not just Saudi Arabia that's going to ask for that. The whole world will be an open door to go that route without any inhibition, end of quote. Norman Rule, perhaps, how realistic is this? Uh, are we talking about a few, a handful of countries, finger folds? Well, it's certainly so- clear that, multi- that it's reasonable that all countries would, accept, would ask for the same thing that Iran has received. Iran is aggressor, an aggressor nation. It is one of the most violent uh, actors in the international community, and it is a state sponsor of terrorism. And it's hard to say to our traditional friends and allies, we'll give them a better deal than we'll give you. At the same time, the um, um, requirements of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action uh, placed on Iran, unprecedented international oversight for many years of the agreement, and then through the signing of the additional protocol, continued extensive oversight of that Iranian program. That's a requirement to the deal. So in theory, the issue is, is Saudi Arabia entitled to civilian nuclear energy? Of course. Is Saudi Arabia entitled to domestic enrichment? Sure, but the question should be raised, why should it undertake that if there are cheaper and safer ways to obtain that abroad? An argument put to Iran, just because Iran chose badly to do something that's a, that should be an open discussion with Saudi Arabia. And then finally, Saudi Arabia would have to commit to the same international deep oversight of its program that the United States provides on its own or Japan and others. As to other countries, uh, the idea generally is that Turkey and, um, um, and Egypt are, are conceivably likely to follow. But the Emirates have already created a nuclear program, which is described by many as the gold standard. They have a program which is under intense surveillance. It's highly technically um, um, uh, advanced, and uh, they obtain their uranium in a way that makes the international community comfortable. So I think this is a little more complicated question than just the same deal and the same deal. Um, A partial uh, pushback uh, to that, Mr. Rule. Uh, one uh, Arab uh, leader with some prominence said that, look, if you have issues of tension and strife and uh, contested disputes with your neighbor and your neighbor uh, obtains a shotgun and you do not have one, what kind of a fool would you be if you did not also obtain a shotgun? And related to that, that if and when Iran were to obtain a nuclear weapon, the current balance of power in the Gulf region between Iran and the seven Arab countries would change immediately. Uh, Any aggression, expansion, territorial ambitions uh, that came to fruition by Iran at their expense could not really be retaliated against because Iran could retaliate against that retaliation with nuclear strikes. And so this would seem to fundamentally change the perception, the analysis, the assessments, and the implications 
for Iran's obtaining a nuclear weapon. That would be part of the pushback. That would not be correct. That would not be correct, Dr. Anthony. And it's a 1960s or 1970s view of the world. If you live in a world where shotguns are the only weapons, that makes sense. We have B-1 and B-2 B-52 bombers that carry conventional ordnance capable of destroying anything in Iran. The Iranians know it. We know that they know it. They know that we know it, etc. The partners in the region know it. If Iran obtains a nuclear weapon, it can be destroyed by the international community. If the international community uses military action and knows about it in advance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of ifs to go with this. Likewise, is a nuclear weapon the only tool you would use in a conflict? We're in a world of cyber tools. We're in a world of nano tools. If, you, if, you, if, you're, if you're only focusing on they have a bomb, therefore we need a bomb, sure. But if they have a bomb in a world where there are a lot of other options and a lot of other consequences to gaining those options and costs, it's a different kind of calculus. But you're correct. This argument does it, it is often given. But in the deeper and more senior and more sophisticated political discussions among leaders, and I've, I've watched these take place, um, that th th there is there's more detail and nuance to, the, to where that, com that conversation goes. And I, and I underscore, Iran should never be allowed to have a nuclear weapon. All options should be on the table. And we should do everything from diplomacy to military action to prevent that. Uh, if I may, uh, well, uh, can I just uh, give my view on this point? Because it's important for our uh, part of the world and the whole world. First, uh, in terms of Iran to produce the weapon, I think Iran wants, uh, wants to uh, play with this card more than to go all the way to produce the weapon. That's where, I mean, this gives Iran more legitimacy maybe within Iran and among its uh, allies and friends and proxies across the region. That's we are strong enough that we are sitting the same, around the same table with the P5 plus one, the world uh, superpowers, uh, etc. So this is one of which is a message to uh, Iranian people and domestically and the allies of Iran, the militias, the Hamas and other, and other, other uh, groups. Uh, second, uh, uh, in terms of uh, Iran using the, the weapon, if Iran even use, uh, produce the weapon, it can't, maybe it can't, uh, cannot uh, use it because it's just next door. So if Iran use the weapon against Saudi Arabia or the Gulf countries, they themselves and their people will be affected. So it's not like United States and Japan and other places. So it's far away. So I think they will be affected. And maybe it's more just saying that in terms of balance of power, you are right. The problem we have in this region is with mainly with the Western powers, I would say, and maybe with China also. When Iran becomes more aggressive, Western powers uh, becomes more you know, lenient and... Uh, trying to satisfy Iran. This is the problem we have. So Iran becomes more aggressive, and now we try to, to satisfy Iran, to reach a deal that is more in the interest of Iran, are uh, beneficial to Iran than to the P5 plus one or B4 plus one. That gives Iran like a, a wrong message, I would say. That's uh, it's a green light for Iran to, to have more uh, proxies and militias, uh, etc. So I think uh, we have to recalculate the way we deal with Iran, how to deal with an, uh, you know, a, reg a regime, a political system like this. Does this these messages we send to Iran uh, uh, makes uh, makes it uh, become normal state, not a revolutionary state? Absolutely not. We have to use both ways, stick and current. Otherwise, Iran will continue to have more proxies, more in terms of uh, balance of power, arm racing in the region, uh, as uh, uh, Rawl said. Uh, and of course, uh, uh, all countries will focus on arms and arm racing more than on, uh, uh, the, the better conditions for the people and uh, of the countries and people who live in these countries. That, and that's a problem. In our remaining time, uh, there three questions, not necessarily uh, related, uh, but worthy of response. One is, how is the notion that uh, no deal is worse than some deal? Uh, and if you subscribe to the no deal, would not the implications for policy and interest 
needs and concerns imply that this makes a showdown inevitable and changes the formula not from whether uh, there will be a conflict, but merely when. Uh, that's one question. A second one uh, has to do uh, with the difficulty on the U.S. position politically, geopolitically, uh, and focusing on uh, Iran, uh, but not Israel. And for those who bring in human rights issues, international law opposed to the acquisition of the territory of other people by force, of which uh, Israel is deemed to be uh, guilty uh, in extenso. Uh, does this not weaken? And to what degree, if it does weaken, does it compromise the effectiveness, the credibility, the legitimacy of the United States uh, efforts to lead on this particular issue? And the third one has to do with the absence of GCC and participation in the earlier agreement and no direct participation in this agreement. Given that Iran is a neighbor to all six GCC countries and has issues with the majority of them, that they're not allowed at least to be auditors or sit in on the meetings to have their input and comment on issues that are far more directly related to them in terms of their being neighbors of this power than the United States or any of those in Europe, for example. Might you choose to respond to any of these three questions or all of them in the time remaining? Uh, shall I go first, if you like? And uh, GCC, uh, GCC not participating in the former, uh, I mean, 2015 uh, negotiation, it was a mistake. We are on the front line with Iran. We are suffering from Iranian behavior in the region. We are on a daily basis. We see Iranian interference in, in our internal affairs, militias, attacks mm -hmm. with Houthis uh, in Syria, Iraq, and every place. So I think uh, even if we do not uh, participate in the, in, the, in the meeting, our concern should be put, should be put on the table. Uh, that's because we are uh, suffering more from Iran, uh, I mean, behavior. We are on the front line and we are in terms of, uh, uh, you know, the supply of oil and, and energy in general, we are in a very important uh, geographical uh, location. So I think it's very important uh, the, the concerns should uh, to be taken in consideration. This is one. Second, uh, in terms of, uh, uh, yeah, the first point, but it's uh, well, I think uh, I forgot the first point to mention, but it was very important in terms of uh, uh, no. uh, yeah, if there is a deal or no deal, uh, yeah. yes. Well, I think uh, no deal better than a bad deal. That's uh, I will make it short, but no deal is better than bad deal, and no deal is better than uh, 2015 uh, similar deal. Thank you, and uh, Mr. Rule. I think when, when people talk about the, the consequences of a deal or no deal, they're coming to that question from a pre-ordained uh, position. Uh, if you return to the deal tomorrow, I mentioned a number of the sanctions and restrictions are being lifted. During that same period, Iran's economy continues to grow significantly. And especially in 2025, when the UN Security Council resolution expires, you should imagine two questions. First, how easy will it be to get Russia and China to agree to a new pressure campaign on Iran? And second, if you, the time it would take to restore that question, um, imagine how long it would take for that to impact Iran since it's built up an economy because of sanctions, sanctions relief. So this is the concern of people who say, if you continue with the deal now, if you have no deal, you continue to sustain at least some significant amount of international sanctions, which compels Iran's leaders to make a decision as to what they want, a better economy or a nuclear, or, or a nuclear program. And also, no deal means that you're able to constrain the resources that would inevitably go to Hezbollah, the Houthis, and others who are firing missiles and using lethal weapons against citizens of all of our countries, to include the United States. So really, your position on deal, no deal, 
it's 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 where how how you see the threat and how you see things going going forward. I would like to comment on the issue of the GCC, um, the negotiations in which I I, obser- I observed. I was a, an advisor to the negotiations from their earliest meetings to the last meeting. Were quite complicated. I believe the GCC and Israel, both both uh, victims of Iranian aggression, targets of Iranian aggression, and targets of the benefits of sanctions relief, should have a much louder voice in that in that process. I think it's unfortunate they don't. Although there has been significant engagement with the Israeli government and the GCC of late, they don't have the voice they do. And the consequences of deal, no deal, et cetera, et cetera, will first be felt by those by those countries. And international collective security requires that we all stand together. My footnote there being the Gulf countries, to include Saudi Arabia, would need to coordinate with Israel. And that requires diplomatic relations. So be careful what you ask for. There will be political consequences the next moment. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, In the uh, three minutes that we have left, um, Mr. Rue, you have earlier made the phrase, we're in a gray zone, uh, that we're like uh, September the 10th of 2001, uh, where a trigger-happy or accident or incident could occur, as you earlier stated, at any moment. Would you come back to that? and and, uh, zero in on that uh, and elaborate on it to the extent possible. Off the coast of Yemen floats a tanker filled with four times the amount of oil as the Exxon Valdez. It is leaking. It is in extremely poor condition. And the Houthis have, uh, with periodic uh, 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 concessions, denied international capacity to, to handle the ship. If that ship explodes, it will shut down the, the fisheries for 2 million Yemenis, perhaps permanently. It will impact 8 million lives immediately and for decades. It will close the Babel Mandab because shipping cannot move through that kind of an oil spill until it's cleaned up. And that will have an immediate impact on global supply chains, energy chains, and the economies of the entire Red Sea Basin, as well as Yemen. That could happen while I'm speaking because of the Houthis, because of Iran. Secondly, missiles and drones in a number that is unprecedented in world history since the Second World War of a complexity and a lethality are being fired against mass mass casualty civilian targets. The Houthis avoid, often avoid, military targets aiming for airports, cities, um, energy targets. If this were to happen, and hundreds of nationals from hundreds of from dozens of com- countries die. How will the world respond? Now, prior to 9/11, on the date of September 10th, we didn't know exactly how or where Al Qaeda would attack. We knew they would attack, but the 9/11 report stated it was a failure of imagination to understand what they would do. This requires no imagination. Requires no intelligence. We know the threat. It's happening now terrible consequence can happen. Policymakers need to act accordingly. And if they don't, the victims of these aggressions, these attacks, will have a pretty good case to, to make against them that they failed in their jobs. A sub-question to that will be how to prevent it. What are the, um, the means uh, to deny that kind of reality? The capability is clearly there. Uh, the temptation is clearly there. How clearly there is a deterrence or should deterrence fail, defense succeed? Coercion with diplomacy is required and we must provide our Gulf partners with the intelligence, material and support they need to conduct military activities that protect all of our citizens while minimizing the impact on innocent Yemenis who are the tragic victims of, of, of this conflict. Ladies and gentlemen, we're at time uh, and we end on a rather somber note, and it uh, urges us all to be more attentive uh, to the macro and to the details of what Iran is doing and not doing, and what its neighbors are doing and not doing, and what global powers further afield are doing and not doing. Um, if Mr. Rule is correct that we're uh, but seconds away, potentially, uh, from a scenario the likes of which we have not seen since World War II. Nothing could be more ominous 
nothing could be laced with more implications uh, to America's, to the world's, to Iran's neighbors, to the Iranian people's uh, needs, their legitimate needs, their legitimate concern, their legitimate interests, their legitimate foreign policy goals. This session, like all of the National Council's webinars and seminars, is designed to advance a mission, namely education. We thank you for presenting as specialists. We thank you for listening. Thank you for, for viewing. All the best.